Officer KD6-3.7. Let's begin. Ready? Yes, sir. Recite your baseline. In blood black nothingness began to spin. A system of cells interlinked within cells interlinked within cells interlinked within one stem. Fuck off, good job. And dreadfully distinct against the dark, a tall white fountain played. Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you long for having your heart interlinked? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you dream about being interlinked? Interlinked. What's it like to hold your child in your arms? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you feel that there's a part of you that's missing? Interlinked. Interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Why don't you say that three times? Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Thank you guys for joining us on this sure. second impromptu, somewhat interlinked episode where we're here just to sort of shoot the shit and talk about life and how it relates to Blade Runner or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been probably about almost three weeks since the first one, I think. Lots going on. I've moved. Patrick moved. I'm moving again. Um, <laughs> life has been pretty crazy. Exactly the uh, opposite of altering. Murray, this is Mark... <laughs> Our friend Mark that we met. I don't know if you guys met, but you Mark was no. at the at the no. uh, event hey, in Murray. November. Oh yes, we I remember you. I remember your face. Yeah, I don't think we introduced each other though. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm still working on the uh, hey, how's it going? My name's Mark thing. And, and <laughs> <laughs> see you next time. <laughs> this is a safe space. There we go. <laughs> so uh, welcome, guys. This I, you know the, the these I, I love the idea of these interleaked episodes because, like we said last time, the you know, Blade Runner is obviously you know a film and a series of films and a franchise, but it's it's really a fandom first and foremost, and it's one of these you know cult films that has amassed such an incredibly close you know tight global community over over the decades. And um, these mm. little sort of timeout episodes are a chance to just sort of check in with each other and, and see how we're doing and see how, especially given these incredible times that we're living through, and I do mean incredible in the real sense of the word, it's, it's almost like just completely unbelievable every morning, um, see how we, how we are doing and how the lenses that Blade Runner provides can help us to uh, have a vocabulary for it. And I can see right now, uh, I think this is Rick Howard, another really good friend of ours is connecting. We got a freaking stacked panel tonight, Jamie. <laughs> and Rick this. was also at the event as well i know so, yeah. loved his costume like mini yeah. reunion loved his setup yeah two of the best cosplays easily that we had there are on this call right now and murray who was not cosplaying but oh. is uh, an amazing guy as well in his own right um so uh yeah so so i guess just sort of to kind of kick things off uh quick check-in like how how is everybody feeling and also if you don't mind mark and uh murray and rick once you connect to audio just give people like a quick sort of just so that you know they know, you know, whose voice is whose. Just sort of introduce yourself quickly and, and you know, go from there. Mm-hmm. Go, Mark. Awesome. Um, well, my name's Mark, and uh, let's see. Recently, I've been, um, I've just really been questioning everything, I think. Um, we, we finally started easing lockdown restrictions in Arizona, where I'm at, and um, I just, I think people are finally to the point, at least from my observations, um, that 
that they're just like, you know, I think the fear is worse than the threat. And um, just kind of seeing life get back to, to some semblance of normal has been really just reassuring that, you know, it may look kind of doom and gloom sometimes, but just like Blade Runner, at the end, there's this, this bright thing that just illuminates the whole thing. It's like, well, yeah, you know, the doom and gloom is worth it to make that, you know, that final experience where it's like, heck yeah, life is amazing. Um, that's just where I've been getting at. I, I was really down in the dumps here for a while. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's getting back to, to, man, today might be my last day. I better live it, you know, to the best of my ability. Um, better create something, even if it's uh, doing stick figures with my son drawing or, <laughs> I don't know, trying to write out a poem or something. I, I just, I don't know, really been trying to cherish it, not take it for granted. Right on. Amen, amen, brother. Yeah. Um, so I'm Murray. I live in San Francisco. Uh, got connected to the podcast through Daniel, whom I met through our mutual uh, love of aviation. Uh, and then he pointed out, I discovered, I think, through Facebook that he was involved in the podcast. And then I got connected to all of you. Um, fortunately, that all started to take shape about a month before November happened. And so I managed to get the visit together. And like, so this all came together very quickly for me. Um, happy to be here. Happy to be helping out in whatever ways I can. Um, so the beginning of all of this was um, sort of, it's happening over there. It's not really happening here. Uh, and then all of a sudden it was here. And um, we went from at work from being a, you know, we recommend you work from home to you can no longer enter the office. You find somewhere else to go. And um, for the first couple of weeks, my daughter transitioned immediately to a, a school from home situation. But my wife had who works in essential services had to continue going in. And I was tense every day because she's out in a dangerous world. I'm safe in the house where there's no threats you know, no, nothing obvious. Uh, I, I started feeling much better when um, she was able to transition to a work from home situation as well. Um, uh, but I'm an extrovert and this has been extremely challenging. Um, I don't do work interviews anymore because I don't want to do them virtually. I want to be at a whiteboard with a person working on a problem. Um, I, uh, I, I enjoy being at work when around my colleagues, you know, I don't let that can do the VC thing, but I don't enjoy it. I want, I want the world to sort of back. So uh, I'm kind of getting used to it. I'm, I, I'm not happy that I'm getting used to it. I, I, I want to resist, <laughs> but I mean, that's the new reality. Um, I, I, I feel better that we're all together, but at the same time, I, I, I miss everything and I'm, I'm anxious to know what's next and when it's going to be better and all that. Um, but at the same time, I'm not prepared to take undue risks at all. Um, my family's health, my daughter's only 10, um, so like Mark said, I want to like, what, what can I be doing to make her future as bright as possible given the way things are right now? So yeah, that's kind of where my head's all at. I, I don't have a, uh, a good immediate answer to how does this tie back to the, to the, to the movies and to the story, but, um, that's a great question. So let me muse on that and maybe I'll come back to it. Well, well, I, I have intro questions. Like we've talked <laughs> with Mark before we know your little story, Mark, like your story about how you got involved in Blade Runner. But I want, we have not had that discussion with you, Murray. So oh. I want to have that with you after we talk with Rick and then we'll circle back around and then sure. we'll just. How are things going with you, Rick? Uh, okay. Let, well, let me check. You guys hear me okay? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. I can hear you great and we can see you even better. I got to say that beard is looking mighty spectacular. As well. <laughs> it's uh, not quite down to my belt, but it's getting there. <laughs> it's getting there. <laughs> I had a head start though. So, 
but uh, yeah, we're we're doing okay. Um, the uh, organization I work with is dispersed around the country, so we already have a lot of experience with uh, collaborative virtual meeting environments, so that kind of thing. So, in that respect, it hasn't been much of a change um, for me um, or my wife. She has sort of a similar thing. So we've got a second office set up in the lower level for her and we commute to work by, you know, walking our respective directions and hasn't been um, too strange there. So the odd part is uh, just not getting out and about at all, but um, we're not particularly extroverted. So that makes it relatively easy to, to get along with. It's hard to not connect with family, you know, other than from one end of the driveway to the other kind of thing. But so far, so good. And Rick, uh, for, for those of you who might not know you already, Rick is, among other things, uh, a, a member of the, of the uh, Shoulder of Orion you know, family. He uh, runs our Facebook group, uh, among other things. So, so thank you for that. And if anybody has ever interacted with Rick Howard, this is the voice you're hearing tonight is the man himself and the beard <laughs> the itself. The beard well. itself. The beard itself. Um, and we were mentioning, Rick, just before you joined, how all three of you were actually at the event uh, last uh, November, and I'm actually wearing the shirt from that event too. So this is sort of a nice little moment of uh, or mine yesterday. <laughs> oh, nice, darn it. Um, Jamie, how are, how are you feeling tonight? I'm doing good. Uh, you know, life has been crazy. You know, I again am an essential worker. I mean, I'm, my current job, which ends on Tuesday, and I can't fucking wait, um, <laughs> is an essential job. So I've been going out into the community since this began. And much like you, Murray, like I've been, it's been tense, like, and I'm not just not going out into the community, like, okay, I'm going to go to, I don't know, somewhere. I'm going into retirement communities, private homes, grocery stores. So for a while, I was pretty like freaked out. Um, There was a moment, I'd say for about a good four weeks where I was like, I don't, I don't know. I thought about maybe quitting my job, but then I sort of took a deep breath and I was like, okay, I can get through this. And I've, I've been doing much, much better. Um, I think my new job, I'll be working almost exclusively from home. So that makes me feel a lot better. California is also opening up in a way that, uh, like like other states, some counties are opening up uh, more than other counties. Yep. Um, things are getting a little bit easier. It's one of those things where I'm introverted too, Rick, so I understand what you're saying, but the part of me that isn't, the part of me that needs human contact can't even get it. So that's been tough for me. I think so, as like not seeing like my friends who live sort of essentially right down the street, not right down the street, but a few miles from where I live, who I see every Sunday, I haven't really been able to see them. Like in, for someone who's introverted but needs human contact, every week just to sort of say okay i can do this that has been tough um it has been very tough for me but i i don't i don't the world is just so crazy i think politically things are just it's like a it's like a atomic bomb exploded in washington right now um (laughs) and uh it's part of the i think the feeling of for me the feeling of um uncertainty isn't so much what's the virus going to do what's going to go vaccines all that i'm sure it'll play itself out and we'll get a regimen of treatment like we always do and we'll get through it but most of the uncertainty for me is like because we're we live in america and it's the city on the shining hill but we're not the city on the shining hill right now we're this 
country that's just imploded in on itself because of lack of leadership, because of a host of things happening right now. And then you add a pandemic on top of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, for me, that kind of uncertainty is anxiety inducing. And that's what I've had to deal with, not reading the news, not like trying not to engage. And then on top of all that, of course, you see Ahmaud Arbery and uh, the other guy, you know, you see these horrific things that have been happening in America for a while, but they're coming to this explosive head. Um, And for me, someone who's a person of color, like I just, it's a lot to handle. The world is a lot to handle right now. And I think the world's always probably been a little bit, but it's been a little bit easier, maybe like, oh, okay, we could handle Washington a little bit better without a pandemic. We could handle this happening without all of this happening at the same time. But instead it's like, oh no, it's 2020. You're getting this and you're getting this and you're getting this, you know? So I'm just, uh, I think really what keeps me sane is uh, my friends who I check in with like Patrick every day. Like I told Patrick, uh, on one of our episodes, I said, like, like he is my, like, anchor. Like, if I can talk to him during the day, I'm good. Um, so, yeah, that's me. You know, I, it's, I feel like we're at such a weird point right now um, where, like, things are, are normal enough that they pass off as kind of a simulacrum of normalcy, you know? Like, that if you're not looking too hard, you kind of feel like things are back to normal. Like, it's sunny out. You know, people are walking in like larger groups. People's masks aren't up as much. People are kind of like, you know, picking up food a lot more. Just just the, these, these strictures that are still, I mean, that on their own, if we were looking at this last year, we would be like, what the fuck happened? But given what we've been used to for the last three, four months, you know, it's, it feels like more normal again. And on the East Coast, um, you know, where things were, were just, I, I mean, un- unbelievable. I mean, like and we actually moved recently, as I was saying earlier, closer to the kind of the belly of the beast because we're very close to New York City now. Uh, and, and like the, the legacy of what happened there, you know, in March is, is just all over things. But even here, where we personally know tons and tons of people who had it and were hospitalized with it, like there is a sense of a thaw going on. There's a sense of a, of a calmness going on. And then I'm reminded that things aren't normal by things like, for example, I lost a colleague yesterday from work um, she had a very rare form of cancer. It was a gene mutation that caused lung cancer um, for a non-smoker, and uh, and she died, very young, like 32, and uh, and it was horrible. And um, and we could there was no memorial. You know, we can't have a memorial for her. Uh, we can't congregate to see her. And so today I was in mourning with my workplace, having this remembrance ceremony for an hour and a half, and looking at the same screen that I've been staring at now for three months, looking at the same faces in the same rooms that I've been seeing them in for three months with the same paintings on the wall and the same pets yapping in the background and the same things that I've now become so accustomed to seeing that I can expect it. And we were all having an emotionally difficult time and totally unable to embrace one another and totally unable to just be in proximity to one another. And it was just really hitting home for me that like, you know, I go outside and it seems kind of like we're past this, but we're really not. Because on top of that, you know, we got an email saying that there is no chance we're going back until September. And after that, it's probably going to be significantly longer also. And on, you know, a side note, I'm, I'm also like Jamie now going to be working from home permanently. So this is another, you know, so it doesn't really matter for me. But, but the fact that like my workplace is saying that the things that I left on my desk back in March 
6th when I left the office are still sitting there, you know, that like my tea pass is still sitting on my desk next to the coffee mug that I never got to wash out. And that it's going to be there for like probably a full calendar year. Um, it's really starting to hit me. Uh, I, I will say personally that, um, so we had, uh, my, my father is like a really highly at risk person in this environment because he's older, has some very severe breathing issues, uh, has other like health conditions that could lead him to, uh, you know, not do well if he were to contract it. Um, and so, you know, for, for the first few months of this thing, obviously we were not seeing the family at all, but we were also knowing that we had this move coming up and knowing that we needed somebody to just take the children for a couple of days so we could drive a moving truck. Like we knew that we were going to need to break quarantine to do that. So like the lead up to last week for us was so scary because like I felt that real sense of like, what do I have control over? What do I think I have control over? What are other people doing that I don't know about? that could be in danger. Like what if my fucking dad gets killed because some, you know, delivery person didn't wear, use gloves when they're delivering the mail, right? These things that are so like ridiculous, but, but are so real. Um, and so we had to break quarantine, uh, to, to do this, this move. And, uh, and it was like terrifying for me. Um, and you know, luckily everybody's good, you know, as, as of, as of now, but I, I, I just, it was the first time I think I'd felt this real sense of the weight of my personal choices having potentially fatal consequences on people that I love. And that has really been weighing over me this last, uh, this last week. So anyway, all this is to say, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that you guys are all here tonight. I'm really glad that you guys are all safe and your families are safe and it's wonderful to see your faces and hear your voices. And I want to return if we can to Murray, um, to get a little bit of background. Cause this is the, fir- this is the first time you've been on the show, right? Yep. yep. Right. I feel like it's not because we, we speak quite a bit, but, but this is the first time you've actually been on the, on the podcast. So um, Mostly if you I told you people, over messenger. <laughs> <laughs> you want to give people a little bit of a window into like, you know, your history of Blade Runner. Cause it's pretty interesting. I think. Well, um, it's funny because I think I saw, I think I saw it when it came out, uh, not originally because I was too young to see it in theaters, but, uh, in the, not dating myself here, but the, the, the Betamax years, right? We had one of those. My dad got it from the rental store brought it home, watched it. And I thought, huh, I, that's kind of interesting. And I have some questions, um, but I wasn't, uh, I chose at the time not to engage my dad about like, what did this mean? And what did that mean? Yeah, any of that sort of thing. Um, and then I, I sort of mentally put it away for a little while. Um, fast forward now to the nineties where um, I'm in college and it's occasionally playing in the common room. Like, oh, other people know this movie. Um, and so start the conversation sort of started to happen like this was really cool, but it was more about the story of the tears and rain speech and the, um, the, the, the backstory of how the movie was made, not so much the plot or the, or the, the ambiguities it leaves that leads that leads us to the conversations we love to have on these podcasts. Uh, and then a couple of years later, um, a, a crazy new year's Eve party where the, the, the running soundtrack on repeat was the Vangelis soundtrack. And so that's burned into my head because there was just this, this entire formative experience from my twenties, that party that lasted all night. And that's all we heard was the, the romantic music of Vangelis all evening. Um, and then uh, I know I watched it a couple more times and then um, here and there. And like, the, it's like, it's like a planted seed that grew over the years. Um, uh, married my wife. We had a babysitter one night and uh, we went out to see 2049 and all of a sudden all this stuff started coming back. Like, Oh, I remember this from the first one. 
fits nicely into the second one. What a brilliant plot twist. I never would have thought, although Jamie uh, somehow managed to say, I bet Rachel's pregnant. <laughs> Spoiler to those of you who are coming in, you know, late. Um, and then I realized while, while catching up on back episodes, which I'm still doing, like, he called it. That's amazing. Um, but then I met Dan and uh, started rewatching and re-listening and recovering. And now all of a sudden it's like blown wide open for me is like, yeah, all these questions have been sitting in the back for decades. And I always wondered about this and um, what did this really mean? And then uh, I decided I would not let my daughter get away with that, <laughs> with what I did. So we're going to watch these then we're going to talk about them as they happen. And where I need to, I'll inject a bit of narration, but for the most part, I want her to discover this you know, on her own. And at 10, really? What's that? At 10 years old. Yeah, and um, wow. I was surprised that she asked some very prescient questions. Like at the very end of the first movie, she didn't ask talk very much the end, during the first movie. She got to the very end, the credits run, TV's quiet. I said, so what did you think? And the first thing she says to me is, what was with the unicorn? And I'm like, you went straight to oh, one of the great questions, geez. right? So, um, and then in 2049, I think her, her, the thing she said at the end, she kind of got the whole movie throughout the, the, the thing she said at the end, which is something I posted to the group. I said, um, she said, so is Anna Stellina replicant? Because her parents were, but she was naturally born. So she says, I claim they are naturally, she's not a replicant because she was not manufactured. She was born. And it's as simple as that to her. And I, my, my, I think my brain melted out my ears and I had to go pass out for a little what while. What a freaking so, good point. Yeah, right. So okay. she, um, um, she sort of really gets it. And so I'm just, I just re-embraced it all sort of through her and through meeting Dan. And I'm really so grateful that this even exists. There was no... I had no outlets for this except grabbing my random coworkers who would think I'm nuts. Like, what did it mean when they said, you know, so um, that's kind of, that's the, that's the space it fills for me. And uh, I'm so glad I discovered all this. And um, I don't know if Dan has mentioned it yet, but from time to time when I'm flying through his airspace, I'm a, I'm a hobbyist pilot. Um, I try, and I managed to catch him on the radio. I try to work Blade Runner quotes into what I'm saying to him. And I've said, I, I gave Jamie a couple of examples. So, uh, um, I said one of those like a version of it to him moments later. He's like, "Hey, I just used that with." I'm like, I'm like "I know, I know." Totally. <laughs> I have I have many many saved up. I'll have to start writing them all down. Some of them are funny. Some of them are like, "You nobody will get this." But um, once in a while, I come up with a good one. So I'll I'll try to make a list. <laughs> And try to work some of them into this show too tonight. Oh, well that I can help you with. (laughs) (laughs) We should have some sort of a list somewhere of huge questions asked by young people being introduced to Blade Runner because there's been my son, my six year old who also watches it has asked some of the most fascinating questions. Like I brought one up on on, on an episode a while ago, but, but like one of the first things he asked me was why are people outside so much? Um, and I was like, wow, I've never even thought about that. Like, like, what, like yeah. what, why in this society where, you know, you would think everybody's sort of like enclosed all the time. They're actually all out in the open and they're just not interacting with one another, right? We should, we should have like a running, a running list of things kids have said when introduced to Blade Runner because yeah. it's some really fascinating, like that idea of Stellene being natural born and therefore not a replicant is like, I mean, there's huge philosophical implications to that statement, mm-hmm. right? To be born is to have a soul. Yeah. And the answer to her was, well, the answer is obvious. It's obvious to a 10 year old that there is, that, that she is human because she wasn't manufactured. And that's just the end of it. Like all of we as adults tend to complicate all these answers with like, well, what about this? What about this? Nope. It's she's born a human. That's it. Which is interesting, Patrick, we've never had an episode where we're actually talking about Stellene ever. 
I know we have never we have never touched that. Um, we've talked about a lot of the characters so far in 2049. Not all of them, but a lot of them. We've talked about Joy like 80,000 times. Um, <laughs> you know <laughs> she's your gonna, favorite. Yeah, actually, I'm going to bring her up tonight. Um, oh but, my God, Jamie! I, <laughs> no, no, no. I think you're going to be fascinated by this, but I want to okay. get to Pat to Rick to find out your journey with Blade Runner. Has Rick never been on the show before? No. No, you you guys always like schedule. Hey, guess what? First thing tomorrow, we're gonna get together. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, we always we always drop it at the last minute. To be fair, but yeah, I'm gonna check with my now. social. Okay. I know my my social director didn't have me booked for anything, so worked out <laughs> well. But I'm you know I'm a I'm a I am the old man in the group because I uh, caught Blade Runner in the theater back when they were real theaters. So I got to see this on a massive hundred foot screen with what was then relatively new Dolby sound and um it was just startling 35 uh, millimeter yeah the mm-hmm. whole thing um no so it was 75 so 70 mil one of the big wow things it was it was very cool one of the few theaters that were running it so or i may be confusing it with alien doesn't matter both were astounding um, but, uh, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> it's, 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 some it's days I feel like that today for sure. So, uh, so yeah, we've been with it a long time and, uh, it has, um, morphed for me, you know, cause at the time it was the, the visual was, was astounding and uh, totally engrossing. And then the complexities of the stories and the evolution of the characters and it kind of goes around and around and the sort of a generational thing and, and then complicated by the multiple cuts of the film as they come out and um, introduction of the film to to new generations so uh, it's kind of what keeps it interesting to me because some of these are old old questions that keep coming up but it's always interesting to hear where people are um, going with them today uh, based on their experiences um, where they started with all of the later in their journey. So that's, it's, it's interesting stuff. Always, always excited to hear what people have to say next. And um, where were you or what was your journey like with 2049? I don't think I know fully what you think about that film. Yeah. Well, it was one of those, I was one of the crew that's like, well, this will be, cool it wasn't the film i was hoping for or looking for but it's happening so i'm i'm excited um i'm a fan of the director so this could be really good which is kind of a um, set me up for that and i was and i was very happy with it um i uh, tend to view films with lowest possible expectations which means 2049 really excelled because it did a very good job um i felt it was a uh, had a great aesthetic, it picked up all the pieces. Um, uh, very, very pleased with how that went and then found myself finding any excuse to, to catch it. So I was doing a lot of business travel during its release. So that became my thing is every city that I sat down in, I, you know, where's it showing? And, you know, can I get to a, a viewing or a screening of that? So it um, became a, became a, a, a favorite pretty early on and I didn't feel any of the disconnect that some other old school Blade Runner fans felt with it. I thought it was a, um, the, uh, the right um, continuation of all of that. Can I ask you a question, Rick? 
Um, oh, sure. Because this is something like there are things in this life that I, I cannot do. And one of them is I cannot go into a movie with low expectations. <laughs> I just like, I all, every single time I try, I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to hold myself back. I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm too excited. And then I get my hopes up super, super high. And then I'm like devastated <laughs> so frequently when I go to movies. So when you're, when you say you're going kind of expecting the worst, is it out of a place of like fear or is it out of a place of like just being able to hold yourself in check? And if so, how do I do that? <laughs> If I could bottle that up, that would be that would be some good stuff. Uh, it's um, it's well, it's just easy to assume. Well, I shouldn't say it's it's become it's become easy through habit, just to go. Well, you know, if it's if it's only this good, that'd be okay. You know, what's what do I have to have happen? Well, it's got a nice cast. So I like these people. Or the director's got some, you know, some good history. Um, you know, good filmography. So it'll be okay. And okay is good enough. And so yeah, I don't know how you get into that stage, but um, practice, Did you practice like Zen meditation before this shit? I, I, I did. Oh, yeah. I actually did spend some time there. So maybe that's where, well, that's that where it comes out. from. You know, just, uh, <laughs> you know, find my way, find a way to detach from all that. And then I like that. I can just be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. I think it's interesting that, um, uh, Patrick, like I, when I go to a movie, I don't have expectations. I sit down and I hope to be entertained, not more than entertained. I hope it's, I hope it's good. I hope I'm engaged. I hope I like the characters. That's kind of all I hope when I sit down in a movie, do you actually sit down thinking, I think this is going to be awesome or what's your mind set? I don't think it's going to be awesome. I just am so excited. I, I, that, oh, that's the okay. issue is that I just like, for me, the, the act of sitting in a movie theater is one of the most exciting things <laughs> in my entire lifetime. We were talking last night um, about, and I, I know, I know it is for you guys too. So I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm not assuming anything, but, uh, but last night we were recording the Dune frame rate episode. Um, and Jamie and I, it's funny not even be in the show. I guess it might be at the end of the show, but we were talking about how the last time you and I both sat in a film at a movie theater was Invisible Man, which of course has now been out of theaters for three solid months, you know? Um, and it was really hitting me how much I miss that. So Rick, hearing you talk about a hundred foot screen and Dolby surround and all these things, I'm just like, man, I just, I just really, really miss that feeling of, you know, I, I run the film club at work. Um, and you know, we, we stay late you know, on Tuesdays to go to the, to the local Arclight, which, 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 you know, we got to do once because then COVID happened and Arclight is now going out of business in Boston, I'm sure. Um, I but I, I hope not too, but, but I mean, they haven't been able to have any revenue for, you know, the better part of uh, a f- entire quarter at this point. Um, but like, but that sense of like getting together with friends and like, you know, my wife, and like walking over and just like sitting in a theater and watching the, you know, the, the preview start and just sort of being, I mean, and for me, 2049 was like, it was the, the most I have ever felt excited sitting in a theatrical seat in my entire life. Like there is no, there's nothing like that. Um, including the alien films that have come out, you know, while I've been a, a film, a film going age, like there's just nothing like sitting in 2049, partly because it was something that like Rick, like I, I never in a million years thought that was going to happen. I, I was, that was not something that I was sort of pining for, you know, like Blade Runner was something that was just this one-off stroke of absolute genius from a long time ago, from before I was born that like, there was, there's nobody's going to touch that thing. Like nobody could. 
And then like we saw a miracle, like Sapper says, like we saw somebody not only touch it, but, but somehow like elevate the first film even more by giving it even more depth. And, and um, I think because I was already such a fan of Denny Villeneuve before I saw, before I even knew he was attached to it, um, you know, basically from Prisoners onward, that was like, I was just like in love with this guy's filmography. I was like, oh my God, that is the only director who I think could actually pull this off. So I was like, I mean, I was, I was crying before the movie started. So like, if it had been bad, I probably would have like jumped out the window in the back of the theater. But um, yeah, for me, it's more about just, just the, I, I, and that's why I would be a terrible film critic. I, I cannot disassociate my, uh, my subjective enthusiasm for the films that I see from the actual film itself. Over time, I can, right? When I see something from, from like a distance and I'm able to like look at it more clinically, it's a different story. I, I, it, Jamie, you know better than anybody, I can shit all over films like all the time. But, but for me, <laughs> when I'm sitting in a movie theater, like it takes kind of a lot to push me to the point where I hate something as I'm watching it. Um, partly because I'm just buoyed by the experience of sitting in the movie theater, I think. Which now at this point is thinking about that is like thinking about going back to church, really. Like, yeah. Um, I, I I think about my experience with 2049 all the time. Like it was a religious experience, and like I could not leave the theater at the end. I couldn't leave the theater. I I just it was the credits were going two hours and 45 minutes later, and I'm like, it felt like you were home when like someone's taking you. Like, oh, you got to go now. You got to go. You got to go back to your. You got to go back to the the other life and. Man, and I will never forget. This has come up on the on the show before, but Jamie, like, because we saw it simultaneously on different coasts, right? Yeah, and and so we got out at the same time. And I just remember, like, I couldn't talk to Micah when we saw it because I was so I I could not I could not breathe during Mm -hmm. it or after it. And I remember walking across Boston Common and into the into the garden, the public garden, and it was like you know midnight, and it was it was like freezing cold outside, and calling you, and finally being like. Okay, I need to like say something because like Jamie's on the phone right now. I have to like actually not just do a. And weird I'm like, well, dialogue. well, yeah, yeah, right. I'm like, it fucking yeah. sucks. Yeah, I mean that that <laughs> I think that moment when Rachel 2.0 walks out is probably the most intense experience I've ever had in a movie theater, hands down, hands down. Watching Rick Deckard sit in that chair and look at this woman who looks like the woman he loved. I, I mean, whew, that was intense. That was I, I want to segue a little bit into maybe. And I've been thinking a lot about this, like the way our life does, the way we live our life now change the way we see a film like Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049. And I wanted to start that off by talking a little bit about Joy, because I, I know, of course, we talked about her for a long, long time, but this is, since this pandemic started, and I've watched 2049 twice, I think, and the last time I watched it, I thought, that's why he likes Joy. I, there was this like, oh, validation to like, oh, that's why she's important. That's all he's got. That's all he's got. He can't make contact with anybody else. He's almost forbidden to. All he has is this woman who says he loves, she loves him. And, she, you know, she is what she is. And she's in her, his, his apartment. And in light of us, not being able to have contact with each other. I mean, aside from in in and out of the grocery store, but don't touch each other, don't get more than six feet apart. That's it. And for those of us who don't have a spouse that we live with or children, like you, we don't have anything else, you know? And so because I've been in that position, I've really understood why uh, K is so connected to joy and the importance of that because he, you know, 
much like his baseline test. They keep him in a little box. What is it, you know, how does he feel about his, you know, like interlinked? I mean, all of that, all of those things he longs for, they grill him on. Where is his head at? Where, wh what are you thinking about? Where do you want to be? Where do they keep you? Like, you better be on target because if you're not, you're like, and so for me as a single person during this, not just a pandemic, but it's this, you can't touch other people. You can't hug other people. You can't go see other people. You can't go on a date. You can't do any of those things things start becoming joy for me. And um, I really, really, really understand his relationship with her now in a way I, I don't think I could have before this. I remember um, thinking in the, during the movie how, what torture that must be to be in love with or your only companionship is something you can't actually touch. You can, you can see her appearing to touch you, but the sensation never comes. You can, you can hear her saying the things that you wish someone would say, but there, there's this echo of hollowness to it because it's, you know that it's, it's manufactured, maybe it's an AI, but you don't quite know. It's not, there's, a, there's a veneer of not quite real to it. And now we're forced into situations where everything, almost everything has become virtual. I mean, I live with my wife and my daughter, but I don't know when I'm gonna be able to hug my parents again. You know, that kind of thing is really, <clears throat> um, yes, there is definitely, I agree with you, it's a lot more real now. Um, I. I guess I could say I'm more in Kay's head in this regard. Um, uh, and never thought that I would ever feel that, <laughs> but now it's, it's thrust upon us. Today I found myself really in the moment when uh, my wife just put her hand out, like just to, to feel finger to finger, right? Like um, I just sat there and I'm like, thank you for this. You know, like, like just really had a, a deep appreciation for, for that small sediment of, of, of love that it's like, you know, I am, if anything, I'm more grateful uh, to have the people in my life that I do probably hug my kid more now than I ever have. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, I think Blade Runner 2049, it's the space. It's that, it's the fact that Kay can't um, really connect with joy outside of, you know, what she tells him and stuff and uh, that it, it creates this like, man, you better appreciate this if you have it in your own life, or, or at least that's, that's what I'm taking away from it. Uh, just that deeper appreciation because yeah, um, it's so easy for me to take the best things in my life for granted. So that's what I had. Yep. And that's been sort of my uh, thing as well. I, I totally got the K bit uh, that you were talking about, Jamie, through this. Like, oh man, if that if that didn't pop before, it really does now. You know, just that whole, you know, and even in that, it's it's just out of reach in a way. So you know how how horrific is that? But um, my uh, solace in that is the same as Mark's. That it's really comforting to you know, stop and appreciate, you know, everything that, that you've got, tangible and intangible, and uh, try to, you know, cherish that. And uh, you don't have to try very hard. It's, it's um, pretty easy in this current uh, strange days to go, oh, well, you know, I'm so appreciative of X, Y, or Z. So and then it is, it almost makes me tear up a little bit for K. Almost, not quite, but, you know. Or you don't feel bad for him. I appreciate that you slipped a strange dates in there, by the way. 
underrated movie. I need to see it. It is an underrated film. It's one of James um, Cameron's bright stars that it's not very, he's so under the weight of all of his big blockbuster. That's a very small art house film for him. Yeah. Relatively. Um, I, it's, it's interesting. Jamie, I, I, I like that, that dimension of this joy conversation a lot, because I think it's not something we've really gotten into before. I think part of why joy sticks in so many people's heads and hearts and why that is such an important thing for people, I think comes from this notion that her existence is in itself something tragic that like, regardless of the love that they share, it means that there's an absence there. Right. And there's this like incredible sort of, you know, two faced thing going on where like, there's this really sweet relationship that's very full of love and very nurturing and very special and very precious, but it wouldn't exist if he were able to have agency over his own life and his own romantic choices. And if he, because, because he wouldn't need this artificial companion. Right. But then again, if that weren't the case, then this artificial companion who feels like she has what we would think of as a soul, even though we know she doesn't, that then like that artificial companion wouldn't feel, uh, you know, like it had the ability to find love either. So like you get in this Jacob's ladder thing going down of, you know, what is revealed by the existences of different things with, with, with 2049. And I think that's part of why she's so amazing. And I, I completely hear what you guys are all saying and, and agree with it. The small quiet moments um, are so powerful now in my life. The moments, and I know it's it's like almost cheating because when you have kids, it's like very easy to talk about those those moments. But like, but with with my children especially, like holy shit, the amount of times like they were just today, uh, you know, they're really into Minecraft, which is great because I fucking love Minecraft and I'll play that shit all day long. So I'm totally cool with it. But, um, you know, when they've been, you know, going through the backyard on these quests, you know, we made these cardboard swords today, you know, with markers and things and um, wearing bike helmets to pretend like they were armor, you know. And I was just watching them while I was working through the window in the back, just sort of tromping around the backyard. And I just like closed the laptop for a second and just sort of um, like listened to their feet in the grass. And I, I, I stayed in that moment for a lot longer than I think I would have before this pandemic. And I know part of it Part of it is because we are in this constant presence of a threat to a degree, even though it's so minor for most of us. And even though it's so like, like we're all, you know, knock on wood, going to be fine. Our families will really hopefully be okay too. Like it is present. Like it is a clear and present threat that has different ramifications for different people. So it's there all the time, right? Part of it is that the fact that our baseline is just sort of a little baseline reference right there that our baseline is kind of anxious because of that, but there's something else to it. And I think it's because we feel as humans globally vulnerable. Um, you know, I, I work, as I've mentioned before, my day job is for a, is for an international um, nonprofit Oxfam. Um, and we deal with, you know, all sorts of different issues like, you know, around, you know, gender violence and around food insecurity and around, um, you know, extractive industries and holding companies accountable and all these different things. Um, but every time we deal with these things and we work with, you know, U.S. donors, we are basically trying to sell them on the idea that they can have an impact on something going on somewhere else. 
that we can basically get them. And my actual job really is to use storytelling to make this abstract concept of what's happening somewhere else in the world, what's happening in, in you know, Darfur, to feel like it's happening in somebody's backyard because it's, it's real and it's real people and it's not just impact statistics, it's, it's actually real life. But now all that fundraising effort, not all of it, but a lot of it, has transitioned to COVID relief because that's now just occupying everything in the entire world. I mean, like from global supply chains to water, sanitation, and hygiene to all these different things, right? Everything is transformed by the presence of this monster. But the monster is also present actually in people's backyards who we're interfacing with, right? Who are who we're actually trying to fundraise from. So like everything now, every conversation I have with with donors and with people who are, you know, in in the relief, you know, business. Uh, is it's it's colored by this reality that we're all in this together and that it impacts us in different ways but like it's a truly global moment where we are experiencing vulnerability simultaneously and where the rich and the powerful can also be taken down very very quickly by this thing just you know Boris Johnson you know one of the most powerful men in the world very nearly died you know from it rel- relatively early on in this thing um, and it's just people see that and they realize like, oh, this isn't abstract anymore. Like this is actually real. And I think because of that, these little moments of humanity, these little moments of light poking through go such a long way. You know, these little hearts people are painting on trees, these little signs people are leaving out, these little things that like might be a little corny and might not really be necessary, but they bespeak something deeper about people wanting to connect through the static a little bit and wanting to be there for each other. It's It's very powerful. And I think... And I'm glad that you've all mentioned that you're feeling this connection to these small moments with, you know, children and loved ones and seeing, um, you know, like real, like when, when there's nothing else left, what remains, you know, and for Kay, Joy is, is his entire universe, right? She's a, a computer algorithm that simulates, you know, light. And she is also his actual soulmate, you know, in a way that I don't, that nobody can argue with because to him it's real and it's as real as it needs to be. And I think that's, it's, it's an incredible duality that um, I think a lot of us can relate to right now. You know, what's interesting about some things that I've picked up about Kay that I'd seen before, but never really truly processed, but I do in light of the context that we live in today is there's a moment when he's at the food court and Mariette walks up to him and she puts her hand on his hand and he looks at her like, why are you touching me? Um, Like, you shouldn't be. Um, And then when she comes to his apartment um, and she sinks with joy, there's this real uncomfortable sense from Kay that I don't know if I should be doing this. Um, Where he's so used to the virtual it's, and I don't know, in terms of mythology of Blade Runner, if it's against his programming to not actually have sex with a woman or be physically close to... I don't... I think that would throw him off his baseline. I would imagine. It would make sense based off the questions that... Or based off the baseline test. The things that he's repeating over and over. Like, you're not like, where are you? What do you want? What are you thinking about? Where do they put you? Like, he's got to be kind of on the straight and narrow path. Um, and those moments, those little moments of him sort of being surprised at human touch have been interesting because there have been times when, whether I'm at the grocery store or not, you run into someone, you're like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Or you're getting a little bit too close and, and you're not maybe for me, like there was a point where I wasn't really 
paying attention to what I was doing and then I realized I was really close to this lady and I backed way up, you know, because I'm like, oh, I don't want to offend her. Like, um, and then a word comes to mind or a title comes to mind that I feel like is oddly relevant. It was the alternative title to Blade Runner, Dangerous Days. It's kind of what we're living in, like everything's a potential danger. And we've discussed this a little bit, but really everything could be potentially dangerous. And what that idea does to our our relationships with our neighbor, uh, our relationships with our family, that your family could be potentially dangerous. Your, your kids might carry something and infect your parents. Um, that's just so, so crazy. I mean, there are things about Blade Runner that are jumping forward to me that have not before, and even in reference to 20, uh, 2019, there's the scene of Deckard shooting um, Zora in the back as she's running down the street. This woman who hasn't really done anything except for decide to live. We live with that today as a reality as people, that there are people in this country, in this world, that believe that they are not wanted in certain neighborhoods, they are not treated as human, and they are killed indiscriminately by people who think that they shouldn't either be where they are or be who they are. It's a reality we live with. Ahmad Aubrey is Zora shot in the back while running. And I don't bring that up to like, Oh, like I just, these things, the prophecy of Blade Runner is so fucking true. Like it was, you know, I think the, there was a, the interview with, was it uh oh no it wasn't philip k dick but it was bradbury and i u read one of the quotes on our dystopia episode patrick and he they're talking to him about the future and how he writes and he said it's to what did he say it's to keep that future from happening what what do you remember that quote patrick he said i remember that, I, rem to, I remember you saying it but i, I can't remember what the word i, I can't remember anyway but, but the, the, the idea is that he's writing it to to make sure that it doesn't happen. yes basically. to avoid no, it to avoid yeah. it and yeah. unfortunately we haven't in some ways i mean economically and i i think that there is resounding hope in through all this and i think the hope is what we're doing it's connection it's who are we despite our political affiliations despite our um the color of our skin sexual sexuality all those things who are we how do we connect with each other i think that's the resounding hope between us between our friends between a lot of people i think even some of the people who i know who are republicans or varying amount of different political affiliations a lot of them are like no hey we are this is we are here for each other and i think that that's really really powerful but at the same time i really still the reality of the violence of Blade Runner is is shocking to me. It's shocking to me. Um, you, you reminded me of something. When Mariette puts her hand on Kay's hand, and he takes it off, of course, and then later on in the, in the, in the more intimate scene when he hit there at his apartment, um, that must be some sort of program overload for him because it's the only intimate contact he experiences. The only other physical contact he has is Deckard punching him, love kicking him, and um, Sapper trying to trying to destroy him. So he's so used to being the victim of aggression. I, I don't know that. Uh, could, could you imagine that that's what you're used to, and then suddenly someone is trying to address your, trying to reach your more sensitive, the more sensitive parts of you? I, I don't even know if I would know how to deal with that in in that situation. 
a really good point because he doesn't even have the vocabulary. In addition to being somebody who's just like abused and, and sort of built for abuse, like he also doesn't really have the vocabulary yet to know what love feels like physically, right? He knows what it should feel like and he knows what he pretends it feels like with, with joy. But, um, but physical love being expressed like that is something that I think he just doesn't have a working vocabulary for. So when we see him being so furtive and awkward in that environment, um, it's probably not only because he's uncomfortable with the situation, but because he doesn't really know how to, how to handle that sort of stimulus. So I, totally, I think it's a great point. And we also don't know really what Kay thinks of Joy. We don't know. We, we all give us give our ideas of what he might we, he might we he might love her we don't know if he loves her he's never he never tells her he loves her she tells him he lo- she loves him because maybe she's programmed to he never once says i love you um and then when love asks him because she hears the the uh the thing go off and he's like she's very realistic thank you you don't know what he thinks about her um and sometimes he, you see him looking at her and he's looking at her like what are you like he has this look about him that uh, Ryan Gosling does so well, where he, he's just studying things and you don't know what he feels. So I feel like Kay is an, almost an avatar and what we feel about joy is what you feel about joy. It's not what Kay feels about joy. Um, I, I, it's fascinating. It really is because that, that, that's, it's, it's almost like a blank slate. Their relationship is a blank slate. And depending on where you are in your own relationship or how you view the world is how you view Kay and Joy. If you're hopeful yeah, it's about Rorschach. love, you know. Totally. You know, I, was just, <laughs> you I was just thinking, was that, was that a cat I just saw? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, oh, my God, so cute. I was just thinking going back to what Murray was saying for a second, um, although Jamie, I agree with you that, that their relationship is this beautiful Warshak test. Um, I think we are all going to be experiencing some of that because I, I feel like I have personally kind of lost the vocabulary physically of just casual interactions with people. Right. Like I don't, I don't know. Uh, that's going to be such a weird reckoning when it comes time, when we feel like, you know, because of the presence of a vaccine or because of whatever, that, um, you know, we can go back to just sort of like, you know, slap people on the back when they do a good job or like hugging somebody you haven't seen in a few weeks or just these, these little minor, you know, um, human things. Like, I, I don't remember what that feels like. I, I, all I know at this point is avoidance is in trying to minimize myself. Like you were saying, Jamie, in the store, like when I was in that Walmart earlier, um, I was I was terrified every time I turned a corner because it's like, oh my God, there's going to be some person here who's like at risk. And I'm going to like freak them the fuck out or like I, I'm somehow carrying this asymptomatically and I'm going to end up being the person who kills this person. You know what I mean? Like, but so to me, yeah, like the, the idea of, uh, of just walking alongside somebody in a store and being like, Hey, excuse me, can I just grab this? You know, like, I, I don't know what that's going to be like again. And I will probably be kind of like, Hey, you know, I'll tell you before uh, I found your guys' podcast, um, I had a very introverted life. Um, I've been out of work since uh, 2012 uh, due to my PTSD. Um, but when I heard you guys and in, in the, the depths that you were talking about, you know, like my favorite film ever, and of course, Blade Runner 2049 brought me back into really loving the first one too. Um, you know, like, I'm still working on that too. And um, I, I guess right now it's just like, 
even if it's not physical contact, you know, what, what can I do to reach out and connect? And, uh, I don't know, you guys were talking about programming too, that he's overriding his programming. It just dawned on me too. Um, when, when love kills, uh, Yoshi, she says, because we never lie yet. She's telling a lie while she's doing it. So it makes me wonder, this is the new line of repl- replicants who obey. Um, is that programming just a front? Uh, it seems to me like if there is programming, it's very faulty because they're definitely able to override it. Uh, just made me think of that. I was always wondering when she said that, whether it wasn't you know, a, a, um, a contradiction in programming, but she was deliberately being sarcastic. Oh, no, we never lie, you know. I also think she was made by, you know, uh, Wallace calls her the best angel of all. I don't think, in my supposition, I don't think that love is a typical replicant. I think love is especially made um, to be a little dishonest and to put up a front. Um, Whereas with Kay, when things are going wrong with him, you see it almost like a does not compute with him. He sits in front of that, that, um, that fire, that furnace with that um, horse for what feels like an hour um, as he trying to understand what's happening to him because something is breaking apart in his brain. And then when he sees the, when he first sees the date on the tree, he, you know, knocks him back and he's like, what is this? That to me is his programming, whatever that is, whatever that biological engineering is, it's going awry inside of him. And then, of course, the second baseline test, you see Josie wa- Joshi watching him and something's going on in his brain and she can see it. But this man, this thing is off of his programming, way off of his programming. And it means it might mean death for him um, until he said, yeah, we found the kid or whatever. But I think to your point, Mark, I think um, I definitely think that it's hard for replicants to break that programming. Um, and when they do, it's, it's a big life event, which it was for Kay. And then it seemed like for a while after Kay, you know, he's on the bridge and he sees um, the big pink joy. He's almost catatonic. Like he's broken through his programming. So now what, what does he do? What do I do with this? What do I do with this knowledge? It's almost like he's eaten from the tree of life or the tree of knowledge. What's the next point? The next point was, well, I have to do the right thing. I have to essentially save my father, um, which I feel like that's what Deckard was for him. But it's very interesting. It's a lot to discuss. Yeah, I think going back for a second, um, there's an interesting parallel with Rachel and love that we've explored a little bit, but um, probably not enough. So maybe we should revisit. I think I think another love episode would be would be a really good idea. I think I totally agree with what you guys are saying. That I I think that she has she incorporates some experimental elements in her and the way that she was built. Just like Rachel was kind of a prototype. I think love is sort of a prototype. And I think part of why love has that prototypical thing going on is because she was programmed to basically be like the uh, like the negotiator for Wallace. That she's kind of like his right hand, right? So so she can kind of get the dirty work done and to get the dirty work done, you have to be able to negotiate into, into politic a little bit. So I, I think she was probably built with the ability to lie in deployment of something else that she doesn't have control over, right. To lie on behalf of very certain conditions kind of a thing, which is pretty messed up because it's like, 
you know, she's given this like what, what looks like freedom, but it's freedom in the service of a goal that she never got to choose. Right. Um, going back for a second, what was the second, the second thing that Jamie, what, what were you just talking about after that? Okay. Breaking his programming. Oh yeah. Thank you. Breaking the programming. So there's something interesting going on in 2049 that I think r- reminds me of like some like really great, sort of like Hal 9000, some like really great moments in science fiction where I think it's because basically he's in the presence of an impossibility, even though it's a perceived impossibility, right? Because he thinks that he is this sort of, you know, this bridge organism, right? Uh, and so because he thinks that he is the sort of chosen one, um, it like allows his programmed mind to basically get a bug in it, you know? Um, I think, and I think what happens is that bug sort of propagates and for him, it gives him this basically free will. It gives him the ability to transcend, even though he learns the truth, he still has agency by the end of it. Cause he does by the end of the movie he's on the run, he's doing his own actions. He's, you know, going directly against orders from multiple agencies. He is, he is his own, person right i mean he he is you know going back to murray's daughter's point like i mean i like at that point the only thing make keeping him from being human is the fact that he was engineered but other than that i mean he has no you know uh, otherwise outward differences from from just a human going about their business um and i think just like david in prometheus and covenant you know i think similarly sort of a bug starts in the presence of an impossibility and that bug propagates and in the context of blade runner that bug leads to freedom and that bug leads to, you know, insurrection in pursuit of, of deeper truths. Whereas an alien, you know, that bug leads to, um, you know, insanity and, and deconstructivist creativity, you know. But, um, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point. I think we need to get back to love at some point. How do we break our programming? That's, I don't know why that just came to me, but it's like, we we now have to be aware of all these things that we really didn't have to be mindful of about three months ago before this uh, pandemic. But um, there's a lot of fear associated with that. And it's like, how do I find the balance between you know, that, 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 oh man, everything could be messed up. I could get too close to the lady and unwittingly, you know, that could be harming her to being, I don't know, like, Hey, I'm just absolutely oblivious. Nothing's going on. I'm going to live my life no matter what. Um, I don't know. I guess for me, it's like, how do I find that balance uh, between being mindful yet still living a life? Because I get from K, K did, he, he sacrificed everything, you know, seawalls. I hear that in my head like all the time. It's just so incredible when he takes down, you know, and saves Deckard. It, it's like, how do I get to that point? How do I get to the, you know, where I would put everything on the line just to be able to do the right thing? I don't know. That's something that came to mind. I love that. I, 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 just for a second, like, does anybody have ideas about moments in your own lives where like that's happened, where for whatever reason, a paradigm has changed and you've transcended your programming or you found something else within yourself? I, I mean, I think, I think if we can, if we can figure out how to do that as a global society, that'll be a pretty amazing thing. And and I I think at the heart of Blade Runner, especially 2049 is that exact thing that you're talking about, Mark is, is the impossibility made manifest, you know, and, and transcending programming, both of like replicants writ large, right. With the fact that, that, you know, the world broke, right. Um, And that this impossibility was achieved by replicants procreating, 
Um, but but also just on a personal level, what happens with Kay in 2049 is the story of somebody who finds a deeper truth through losing who they thought they were. Um, so do people have like examples of that in your own lives? I think, I mean, I'm sh I know like that I have examples, but what I think you're getting at and what I think is interesting, and as I think about Kay, he went through all of these terrible things. He, obviously, he thought he was Deckard's child for a while. That was one of the twists. It's like, oh, this is, this is the son of Deckard. You know, it was almost too on the nose. And of course, Denis being who he is, and the screenwriter and Hampton Fancher being who they are, they flip that on its head. Like, nope, it's not exactly what you thought it was going to be. But what I thought was brilliant in terms of a moment for Kay was he went through some terrible, terrible darkness. And what came out of that? process for Kay was a free man um, and that came at a cost freedom comes at a cost and you know I've been through even things recently like feeling like I lost all of these things and my dog you know I guess it probably says a lot for me losing my dog was probably the hardest thing I've ever gone through in, in my adult life hands down I cried for a week having to give my dog up and I've went through all the stuff and tra trauma of moving and familial stuff and all of a sudden I got this job and then all of a sudden I'm like oh now that I don't have my dog I can move now I don't you know I'm free all of this was happening and I could only see the dark clouds I couldn't see that the sun was right above it um, and I think that's what I love about Kay's journey even though he ends up dying he ends up dying a free man and that story of Kay is so important because if you look at um, America during the slavery days, Harriet Tubman, um, the Native American stories, stories of the Irish, stories of um, the Jews during the Holocaust. You'll see that story over and over and over and over and over and over. The cost of freedom, what it meant for Oscar Schindler to hide these people, what it meant for Cory Timboom, if you know who she is, who was not a Jew, but she hid Jews in her closet. And she was taken to a prison camp and killed. Well, no, she survived. She survived. But her friend was killed. I mean, you see these stories over and over in our lives, the lives of our friends, where people are going through this terrible, terrible thing. And it just seems like what's going to happen. And I think even as a world culture, as a, as a, an American culture, we're going, th we are in like dark times right now, but I feel like there's a, we're learning the most we've ever learned about ourselves as a culture. And this is the most growth we can ever, and we're growing too. Like this country is like making some incredible strides towards unity, towards seeing the way people are treated and coming to a boiling point like, like, okay, this has to stop. Seeing parts of our government are like, okay, this has to stop. Um, and it's hard to see that in the mire of the 24-hour news cycle that loves to propagate fear. And, you know, that song I think of, um, uh, was it by, hey now, hey now. Who sings that song? Um, when the world Don't comes. dream. Yes, don't dream it's yeah. over. Um, but the chorus is, um, they want to come to put a wall between us. And I feel like that's what we're fighting right now is that wall between us and breaking that down. Mm -hmm. And it's tough. It's tough. And now we have a pandemic propping up that wall too. So how do we 
continue to break it down and be careful and find our humanity. And I don't have any answers for any of these things. I just think it's the journey is pretty incredible. If we can just sort of keep our remember that the sun is above the clouds. And to be fair, it's not like Kay had any answers either, right? It's not like any of these people knew what what to do. They 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 found it only through trauma. Like they found it through being forced to break through something, you know. Um, and we're gonna find it too, I think. But we're not gonna know until we get there. Yeah, I've. Um it's been a journey of discovery just the last few months to things that I took for granted before. Like, um, um, we had a, a poster went out at work just as we were going into sheltering and the poster said something like check on your extrovert friends. They are not okay. And, um, it took me about 24 hours to realize, Oh my God, that's me. I've never classified myself as an extrovert, but boy, am I having a negative reaction to all of this. And so, um, I, that's where the sort of self-discovery began. And then I realized my wife is still going to work. My daughter and I are at home. I am, I am exhibiting a, uh, a protector instinct. It's my job to get everybody into the house and lock all the doors until the threat is gone. I never, my daughter is just off camera laughing at me now. Um, <laughs> um, it is, it is my responsibility. I've never been called upon to do that anymore uh, before, but the world is suddenly putting me in that position and I'm not happy that my wife is going to work. She needs to come home and stay home and stuff. So yeah, I was, she's my daughter saying, you were so scared. Like, yes, I was. And I'm able now to admit I was afraid. I've said to people, you know, back in March, I am afraid and it's, it's okay to feel that way. I've, um, and there's another thing I've never let myself do before is be afraid and talk about it, about something or anything. Um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a very quick, very sudden evolution in a lot of dimensions for, for me. And, um, uh, I think I'm asking some of the same questions you are Patrick about, uh, are we going to, are we as a, are we collectively going to learn how to live better as a result of this? Gosh, I sure hope so. Me too. It reminds me of that one thing you said, like you can say that you're afraid that you're afraid it just reminds me of one reason why I know this is a, obviously our shoulder of Orion Blade Runner podcast, but why Ripley was so great in Aliens is because Newt says, Ripley, I'm scared. And she goes, me too. Me too. And it takes an adult to say something like that to, to really say, hey, yeah, I'm not made from steel. This is scary for me too. And I mean, I think we all, in varying degrees, I know you live in what was a mini epicenter, Murray, and Patrick, you too. I mean, you were sort of in between the, uh, you know, New York or, and the whole East coast was the biggest epicenter of the country for a while. Um, I fortunately lived in a County that had the smallest in terms, it's the largest County in Southern California, but we had the smallest amount of deaths and, um, ratio in terms of infections. And, uh, it's been pretty okay, but it's when you're faced with where you guys live, where you're like, what's at your back door. It's almost like that movie. It comes at night. Like you don't like really like you don't know who's coming in our house. Who's coming yeah. over? Are they coming inside? Like that's the, the reality that we live in. And then I think about Mark and like, how do we change that? How do we balance that? How do we find, how do we continue to kind of discover who we are while being pr conscious of this reality? That's a tough one. And I don't know. There's another boundary that I, I found that I have to admit. And that's when she asks questions like, when am I going to be able to see my friends again? And I have to admit, I don't know. 
I've never been through anything like this before. Um, I have, I can go read Wikipedia to find out what it was like in 1918. Um, you know, SARS didn't, sorry, she's pointing out SARS, SARS didn't hit us quite that hard here. So um, I've never been through a pandemic before. I have only the history books and I don't have any answers. And it's weird sometimes as a parent to admit I don't know because you're you're the you're the source of information. You're the source of truth for so many other things. It's a it's a weird paradox. But again, just the simple act of saying that I don't know is something that's really liberating, and I think especially liberating for men. I think American men to be to be able to like to get to a point where we're getting really used to saying that. I think it's it's like it's one of those things that is going to be healthy for us in the long term. It, uh, you you guys know I have another podcast. <laughs> one of many podcasts, but this one's called just winging it. And it's a, it's a, it's sort of a dad's show, but it's, um, you know, it's about, it's about life, but it's centered around the fatherhood experience kind of. Um, and we had a, a similar zoom round table, uh, three weeks ago, um, which by the way, open invitation to anybody listening to this or on this call, you're welcome to join our, our next one. Um, but we had a lot of people, we had like 13 people do it. Um, and it was really cathartic. It was all men. There was, there was one woman who was there for part of it, but for, for the most part, it was all men. And we were all uh, saying the words like, I don't know, just over and over and over again, almost like an incantation or saying like, I'm afraid. Like that came up so many times or I'm sad. And so many people said like, this is really hard. Like I suck at doing this. I don't know. Like my house looks like shit right now. I, I forgot like what I'm supposed to do. Like I, I, I forgot to pay my taxes. Like people having like just huge lapses in what we think of as like the sort of the typical, like, you know, the, like what, what we're sort of taught growing up is like, this is what like an American man looks like and acts like, you know, you get your shit together, you kind of move on, you deal with, with conflict. You don't live with uncertainty. You don't live with ambivalence. Um, and I think, you know, that feels to me almost like it's evaporated. I feel like we're like in this current climate, everybody's living with ambivalence. Everybody's living with uncertainty and more and more of us, more of us who need to, especially are admitting that and feeling happy about letting that off our chests. You know, the amount of fucking crying on that episode was crazy. Just people with their mic muted crying in the background because they, they had admitted something to themselves that they hadn't felt like they could say, you know, um, I, I, I like Peter from the Midwest was on that. And as he was talking, I was just sitting there crying, listening to him talk about talking with his children about what's going on. Um, it's re and it feels really good for me to say, I'm afraid to say, I don't know, et cetera. And I think that this is something that we're going to remember because it's, it's okay to admit that, you know, it's okay to live with that. I think. And to touch that and to say it out loud and make it real. You know, that it's one thing to feel it or, hey, I'm not going to pay attention to that feeling. But, you know, while you're you're telling me this about all you guys crying, I'm like, man, that that I'm in recovery. And of course, you know, that kind of involves going to meetings and putting it all out there, good, bad or indifferent. And um, when man, it's like when you say it, it, it seems to kind of lose the power that it had over you. I think that's what I really find cathartic about putting it out there. Uh, you know, and just letting the chips fall where they may. And Mark, I think you're somebody actually specifically who has been in, in the, you know, whatever year or so that I've known you really great at doing this at, you know, at admitting things that you've struggled with and, and being upfront with that and like not being afraid to talk about it or not being afraid to like, to say like, you know, I'm having like, before you started the call today, you're like, you know, I'm having a, a rough day, you know? Um, 
and modeling that kind of behavior is like so it's so healthy for for all of us so so thank you for like being one of the people in my life who normalizes that and is and is really great at expressing it you and I wouldn't even be talking right now if I didn't hear you get completely vulnerable about Roy Batty and what that character meant to you and, and feeling the own tears come down my face. I was just like, man, these guys, wow, they, these guys speak my language, man. This is just, I don't know, definitely made me want to reach out. And then Jamie sent me a text, said, hey, I don't know, but I really want to talk to you. I was just like, I'm going to do this, man. I'm going to, I'm going to get out of my shell and, and do this. And, uh, no, thank you guys. Thank all of you. Seriously. Well, thank you for doing it. Seriously. And, and thank you, Murray, for joining. This has been such a treat. Like yeah. you're one of those people who I'm just so glad this fandom exists so that we could just meet and be friends. Cause you're just a great dude too. Like I, f- I feel like Rick, who is also an awesome guy has dropped off. I think the cat might've severed the internet connection, but, <laughs> but that was great getting to have him on too. Um, and Jamie, man, you are you know, one of my main anchors in life too. And, and I feel like every single day uh, getting to just like hear from you gives me a sense that life is moving and that we're going to be okay. And, um, and I just, I love you guys all. And I'm very, very lucky to be here tonight with you. So thank yeah, you. Thank you guys so much for coming on. And uh, our conversations always tend to be a bit heavy. I don't think you can have a Blade Runner conversation or a conversation about life as it relates to these movies that we love and have them sort of be lighthearted. But I think this is the great work. Um, and uh, I, I love doing it, it, even though it can be hard. So thank you guys for coming on. Uh, we're going to yeah. do this again probably another two, two and a half weeks. Figure out what else there is to talk about. Anytime. You guys know where to find me. <laughs> for sure. Thank you, Mark, <laughs> so much. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. All right. See, you soon. See ya. See ya. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.